You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Today, I wanted to ask you, Father Paul, about the Maccabees. You've spoken many times over the years about this text, about how it's been mishandled, and how it plays in your scholarship. Clearly, the New Testament is a reaction against the attitude of the Maccabees and of their heirs that developed into the Hasmonean dynasty kingship in Jerusalem, a la David and Solomon, and ultimately brought disaster on the leaders and their people in 70 AD when Jerusalem was sacked. But again, beyond that, it is important because in the New Testament, we find specifically a counter-attitude, a criticism of such an approach. Again, the New Testament is very well aware of that. And let me say it bluntly, in the New Testament, we have three major names that are Latin. They don't exist in Greek, let alone Hebrew. Paul, Luke, and Mark. Again, they are important. They are the triad of main writers of the New Testament. And on purpose, their names were Latin, which shows a pro-Roman attitude and thus untimely. Maccabean style Judaism, you know, the criticism of any kind of power, including the sword, which is Roman. And now Paul, we all know, it's the little one. Luke is related to light, the light of the Gentiles. But Mark is something very strange because Marcus in Latin means hammer, which is specifically used by the judge. We have the expression to leave your mark, to make a mark. Now, Maccabean in Hebrew means the one who is like the hammer. Maccab is hammer, and then Maccabee, you know, the ending in Semitic languages with the E means someone pertaining to the way today in Arabic you say Suri, Syrian, Lubnani, Lebanese, Amriki, American, the E at the end, Maccabee. So the New Testament mark, which is the writer or the first gospel, if you like. It's another kind of macabre, which is anti-Maccabee. It's a big deal, a big issue. Now, obviously, the name Maccabees is a superimposed title. The story goes that at one point there was a Matatias. All this info we have from the books of Maccabees, which are not included in the original Hebrew canon, and then also from Joseph. Josephus Flavius, and depending on the time, we can talk about that. I give it a lot of pages in my book when I deal with the New Testament. The father, Matatias, and his children, 
He was a priest in a small village. Then there was no Jerusalem. The importance came precisely with the Maccabees. And he got frustrated with the policy of the Seleucids, who are the followers of Alexander, the heirs of Alexander, divided his, we can call it kingdom, area of influence. There were people in Greece, Macedonia, other places, but the two main parts were what developed into the Roman province Syria, which is the east, and then Egypt, which is very important. In Syria ruled the Seleucids from Seleucus, the name of one of the leaders. Their capital became Antioch. And in Egypt, we had the Ptolemies. The area of Palestine at that time were under the Seleucids. And the Seleucids tried to impose a policy of supremacy by putting down any tendency to form an identity that would challenge them. And the issue of circumcision, this is where it started, and that is a long deal also in the New Testament. These two topics are very important for the rise of the New Testament, how it was written, not so much anti-Roman, but anti-Jews of Jerusalem and their policy. So they reacted religiously in their area. The Seleucids tried to not allow Jewish services and sacrifices, especially circumcision that became at that time a flag of rallying. You know, the Greeks abhorred circumcision because it touched the perfection of the human body. Let's talk about that. You know, I think it's very important because really my hearers have to understand what is going on here, not just how it developed nowadays about religious freedom. You know, how people speak about Hanukkah today, the first real battle for the religious freedom and comes back to identity. So, Father Mark, you hit really a topic that is multifaceted. I'm going to allow myself to speak and then you decide how we're going to revisit to give more specifics on these issues. The Greeks, in their lore, as you know, combined the divine and the human. The gods behaved like humans, and then many of the humans were semi-gods, and it's the same thing. It's precisely... <laughs> The way until now, even the Christians view God, that he's a person with whom you can deal and he acts and he feels that that's the way we are, you know, unless you have a God like you. And my criticism against Alexandrian theology is that pushed this to the extreme, that God became man so that man may become God, you know, which I criticize openly in my book. So it was one society, which means, and here I come to the point of circumcision, that the human body was a divine body, and thus it was perfect as is. Now, circumcision touched the body and changed it, and thus, if you like, deformed it by cutting off the cover of the penis, to circumcise from Latin to cut around. And that becomes, and we can discuss this in another podcast, the whole issue of shame. So if you go to the common baths where people were naked, I mean, Finns are the best people who would understand this issue in the New Testament because when they go to their saunas, they are fully naked. Remember, I you know, was, let my hearers hear it, scandalized the first 
first time when, you know, I went to the sauna and suddenly my colleagues, clergy and theologians, you know, were discussing theology naked in the sauna. For me, it was a big deal. I mean, but anyway, so when you go to the common bath, you are naked and then people can see later. Let me make another jump. You know how Paul does not allow a non-circumcised to be circumcised and he doesn't allow in 1 Corinthians a circumcised to cover up make an operation there is a specific verb there used to cover it up because you don't want shame every time you go to the bath so again I'm stretching so that we could have really the main total picture so it's not just circumcision like that no, or religious freedom like that we have to go back to the setting and this is perhaps perhaps the most important topic where one has to relocate our hearers in that time not bring that time to Minneapolis 2017 no we have to relocate all the way totally back to understand what's going on and understand what the New Testament is all about because the New Testament was written to the Galatians to the Corinthians to the Romans to the Philippians it was not written to the Nevadans that is the whole issue that's why the circumcision is not mentioned practically at all except a few times in the Old Testament but in the book of the Maccabees it's all over the place and Matthias and his sons who were from a priestly family you know services and sacrifices uh, took the position to brandish arms and fight the Seleucids. And for whatever reason, they were successful to some point. And this is what started the whole avalanche. Had they been not successful from the beginning, then we would not have had an issue here. But they were successful to the extent that they established a good level of independence and it followed that they were able to take back, if you like, Jerusalem and establish a center of power there. Now, before continuing, let me go a step back and say that one of the brothers, Judas, very interesting, the name is Judah, you know, and we can see to which extent these names are historical or made up. It doesn't matter, you know. He was very brave among the five brothers in battle, and he was surnamed the Maccabee, the hammer-like. Maccabee, I'm mentioning it in Hebrew, the hammer-like. That's why our Marcus speaks about a polity of peace, even toward the enemy, which is the opposition of that. Remember the story of Peter in Gethsemane with the sword and so on. So he was very brave, and this surname was used to speak also about his brothers, and thus we have the plural Maccabees or Maccabean. As such, the Maccabees are not a big issue, if you like, in later history, in, if you like, factuality. Because the real issue started when the power became established as a kingly slash priestly. We all know that the king is the high priest and so on. And this is what allowed the Maccabees to play on that and be accepted as leaders. They were already priests. They needed the position of kings. And 
This took place later in the so-called Hasmonean dynasty. We all know how dynasties are called by the name of the grandfather. The typical example in the 20th century is the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. You know, it's very interesting that it is the only country that is called by a family, and since we don't have family names, by the name of the founder, who is the grandfather, Saud. What's a Saudi is a child of Saud. Very important for my hearers to understand that, not just it's a name. You have the full, if you like, tribal tradition that imposed itself on a kingdom. It's the Saudite kingdom. In Arabic, Saudi means pertaining to Saud. That's what it means. So Hasmonean means son of Hashmon, which is the grandfather of Matatias. So we see when their power moved to a kingly dynasty in Jerusalem, they had to use that official name is the descendants of Hashmon, Hasmonean. So my hearers have to differentiate when you use Maccabee and you use Hasmonean. It is interrelated. The story is continual between the two, but we have two different words that reflect two different situations. So the Hasmoneans become historically, you know, the Romans had to deal with them and we have names. I don't want to burden my hearers with that. I mean, it would be good, given that we talk about that, that my hearers would read very quickly one, two Maccabees. You can read also four Maccabees, but one, two is enough quickly to see that we have names there. They are mentioned in relation with the Seleucids and slowly on with the Romans. The story of the Maccabees begin in the end of 3rd century, beginning of 2nd century, and then the Romans were already coming in, into the area of Macedonia and Greece and so on, and slowly on they creep into the Middle East. So that's why we have Seleucids and also Romans. So here the Hasmoneans, and I would like to go on this topic to give the total picture, because otherwise it will be truncated, because it is under the Hasmoneans, or Herod. It's under the kingship that was launched by the Hasmoneans that ultimately Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans, not by the Seleucids. So my critique against the Maccabees is that they use the sword when typically in the Mashalik story of the Old Testament, it is God the shepherd who lords as a king over the people, and he doesn't need their sword. Read Amos, read Isaiah, and so on. I mean, he makes fun of it. I mean, he does the business. He doesn't need you to do it for him. That's why all the heroes are anti-heroes. They are belittled, beginning with Moses. But they committed the grave anti-scriptural sin of historicizing. In other words, they assumed at one point their forebears had a kingly dynasty in Jerusalem. And they said, we want to re-establish it. The people took it from us. You know how the Zionists speak today. That's the terminology. Whether Zionists are Jews or Christians, it doesn't matter. It's an attitude. You want to reinstate something that has never been. It's like the Temple of Solomon. I mean, it never existed in that glory. I mean, Jerusalem was not a major city until Herod. So 
there was only one temple that was being constructed by Herod. But people revisit the history. This reminds me of Begin, who said in one of his visits, these are the pyramids that our forefathers built. That's how people speak. <laughs> that with Abraham began a line of descendancy that comes down to us today. So this historicization, again, it's not the Maccabees and their attitude. If it would have disappeared, it's no problem. But it turned into becoming an actualization of something that is presented as a mashal. And that's why we have a king who is also the high priest. And the Romans at one point don't allow a king to remain a king, but they assign his brother as a high priest and so on. One can see if those who know the Bible are living those times, it becomes very exciting and you become very touchy to defend something your muscle has established, you know, a dynasty in Jerusalem. So here we go. We begin with the Maccabees. They wanted to react against a certain kind of oppression that was perceived as religious and also political to the full establishment of a kingly dynasty in Jerusalem. And thus you are actualizing this is what the christians will do later the constantine and then the west you actualize and we all know how especially the english have this tendency to consider that they were the descendant of ancient israel and that's how the byzantines also viewed themselves in other words you're establishing the so-called kingdom or the rule there is no kingdom it's a rule he owns everything there is only one king god you historicize it i mean that's ridiculous from the perspective of the scriptural writers they would be rolling in their tombs they wrote this massive literature against that but we can transfer it look at you yourself you have no choice you know on your website even if in your sermons you preach against the building as jeremiah you know but somehow you have to say we did that we built that we made the altar we're going to have a library we're going to have a playground for the children and i'm not saying it's bad all i'm saying is that you really without realizing mix apples and oranges and that is the thing that is criticized in the Bible. Let me go back to the New Testament again, because we have to make this topic not only very appealing and interesting, but because it is central. Let's go back to this example where you have Peter getting excited when the people came to grab Jesus and to take him to death. He reacted exactly like a Maccabee. He took the sword and cut the ear. So Jesus said, no, you can't do that. First of all, he put, or second of all, put back the ear, which is a very funny story. But again, as I say to myself, why the ear? Why not the arm? Why not the leg? Why didn't he stab him in the heart? It's because it is connected with the thesis of the New Testament, which is preaching the gospel. If you cut the ear of your opponent, how are you going to preach that opponent? <laughs> it doesn't work that way. The opponent needs the ear, and you have to pour the words of God into the ear of the opponent, not cut him in two. It is only on the last judgment, as the Quran keeps reminding us, that God will take care of the matter. Don't worry. 
just preach Islam to the others. If they fight you, defend yourself. If they don't fight you and do not accept your message, just leave them be. God will take care of that at the end. It's very powerful. Repeated ad nauseum. This is precisely, it's the outcome of the movement of the original Maccabees that is faced by the authors of the New Testament. The actualization and thus the human success presented as divine success. Let me repeat this two more times. Making out of human success a divine success. Making out of your success a divine success. And let's go back to the point A with which we started. So what's the difference between you and Alexander and his heirs and all their Greek lore where the divine and the human were intermingled? It's affected our theology. The soul is the divine part, the human being and the body. But I mean, you know all these theories and I critique them openly in my book because this is where things went wrong. In other words, you are dismantling the teaching of the apostle when he makes fun of the nations in Romans chapter 1. Total fun. And then we go back to speaking the same language. That's why our God is another God among the other gods, because he works like them. Now, obviously, we cover this by saying, but Jesus, you know, really died. But the Orthodox never stopped there. You know, they stress the death in order to speak about the resurrection as though we witness it. We don't witness the resurrection. We just accept the teaching of the apostles that Jesus was raised. This is another topic we can discuss. So my apologies, but this topic, because of its centrality for the New Testament, is, if you like, the passage from the Old Testament literature to the New Testament literature, what scholars call intertestamental period, is axial to understand the New Testament. And it is from this perspective that I approach the Maccabees, because people can write whatever they want. I mean, notice that the Feast of Hanukkah is not part of the main feast in the Book of the Law. <laughs> it's a secondary feast. But anyway, there are a good number of Jews that are unhappy about it. By the way, Hanukkah, the word is very important. I refer to it in my book because it's from the same root as Henoch, rededicate of the temple, but Henoch in the Bible, he dedicated his life, not buildings. So you see how one can build on scriptural data in a way to make the result non-scriptural, like Hagia Sophia and the Vatican and the Westminster Abbey and the big churches like here in the south I came and I live in North Carolina and God I drive and I say my gosh I mean these Baptists beat the Byzantines <laughs> they have huge churches and another building a center for sorry the Methodists even and so on. it's unbelievable but this is what happened. And again, since we began with the Maccabees specifically, that was your point, Father Mark. I need to end, and I prepared for that at the beginning, with the Maccabee Paul, if you like, but through Marcus, who presented the gospel of peace. 
And Paul was very powerful in Romans. He wanted to bring down the Romans. Remember, he's writing to the Romans, which means the patricians of Rome, and to put them under the salvation and the power, which are two imperial titles of the message of the gospel, which is the gospel of peace, which is through the word. In other words, you may not use the sword. And in this same letter, Paul speaks, I'm perhaps digging my own grave by launching at you so many ideas that both of you are going to monopolize on and build podcasts by asking me to speak about them, how he asked the respect to the authorities that have the sword of God to rule. But you yourself may not. Anyway, it's a touchy issue. But this is what happened. And the funny thing, let me end with how God laughs seated in the high at all of us. He makes fun of these Jewish leaders by having the Romans appoint upon them a king who is from Idumean, remember. In other words, he is a technically a descendant of Esau, who is the nemesis of Jacob, the father of the Jews in the Bible. It's very funny. So they are subjugated by Esau, a descendant of Esau. And it is he who built the temple of Jerusalem and the famous arena of Caesarea in Palestine. In other words, he reintroduced Hellenism with the help of the Romans in Palestine. And that's why his followers, including the Sadducees, remember how the Sadducees were priestly leaders, which means that they were pro-government. And you have the people who were opposed to them. He did it, and people were forced to pay the didrachma to build it. And then the Romans destroyed all this in 70, but they kept the didrachma and they collected it to build a temple for Jupiter in Rome. I mean, history is funny. Anyway, I am sure, but for the ears of my hearers, I hope that they gave enough attention to this topic per se. And I'm inviting them to read more about it, research, without committing to any views, but just for info to built ultimately their own understanding of the matter. I presented mine, and it's detailed in my intros to the New Testament and in the rise of Scripture. It's so helpful to think about the Maccabees and this kind of anti-Maccabean strain we see in the New Testament. I wanted to ask a question that kind of goes back to one of the early points you made in your presentation about some subtle pro-Roman strains we see in the New Testament. It just made me think of the Dead Sea Scroll sect, the group that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, because among their writings, we see definitely anti-temple writings and the wickedness in the temple, very similar to what we see in the New Testament, but absolutely anti-Roman, that the Romans are evil. You know, that's very clear. And then finally, there's not a militaristic strain that we see in the Dead Sea Scroll sect, but it's all about the final battle. And it's about how the final battle would be the sons of light and the sons of darkness and Beelzebul and all that sort of thing. How do you see the, how can I say, the approach of the Dead Sea Scrolls as highlighting some of these major points in the New Testament? And I guess I guess another related point is, how did the book of the Maccabees end up in the Septuagint, but not in the Masoretic text? These are two questions. The first one is, I believe, very important because there is this tendency to speak about the influence of the Dead Sea communities and so on in the New Testament. I cannot subscribe to that. It's a totally different, actually, their position 
is more extreme than the position are criticized because in their writings they are historicizing the final battle between the sons of light and so on which is in daniel chapter 12 and michael and so on 11 and 12 and so on so that's in its way much more dangerous you actualize you see it nowadays in the extreme strains of christians you know it is as though god is going to come with the angels battling here on earth one has to be careful you do not find this in the gospels you do not find this in the book of the apocalypse so again that's my criticism but it's important to notice that within that same community of, let's call them, as I call them in my book, the followers of the law, a tendency that criticized the Maccabean tendency, especially when it culminated in the Hasmonean dynasty. You said it yourself, they were critical of this Jerusalemite leadership. So that, and I'm thankful to you that you brought this into the picture, to remind the people, because usually to solve our dilemmas, we try to simplify things. There is one point opposed by another point. It is not true. You have people who have their position. And that tells us that a good number of people were unhappy about it. But then my critique from the perspective of the teaching of the New Testament is that they propelled this historicization to the last day. We are the sons of the light. All the others are the sons of darkness and so on and so forth. Regarding the other question, the Maccabees in the Septuagint, perhaps I'll write a book one day about that. (laughs) When we look to our own historical circumstances or we look to our own agendas and then we try to recontextualize these biblical metaphors, it leads to violence, it leads to suffering because you are in fact putting yourself in God's place when you do that. And suddenly you wield the authority of God for a very worldly agenda. And that's when things get very ugly. So I very much appreciate your point that the hammer of Mark is not the hammer people think it is. The Orthodox, especially the Greeks, the Byzantines, you know, people linked Constantinople, always like to mention the Fourth Crusade that came, entered Constantinople and so on. But it's very funny. They are reaping the seed that was planted by the followers of Constantine when they coined the really scandalous Troparion of the Cross, where it becomes your instrument to grant victories notice of the plural. I don't want to discuss that. People can read in my Victories over the barbarians, not the enemies, barbarians. You could see Greek and barbarian. I mean, the seed of the Crusades, the second millennium, are already there in that troparion. But anyway, it's very important to point out these things. Otherwise, we can cover it up like today we try to say, granting victories to the believers over their adversaries. That's not the original, but you change it, but your inner attitude is still the same. In the armies nowadays, you have chaplains blessing. I know people say they bless the soldiers, not so much the arms and so on, but everybody does that. And you pray always for victory on your side, and the other one is doing the same. So it's very tricky.
very tricky. And once you are on this land to justify yourself, it's very hard to be critical. In other words, it's very hard to accept that the hammer not be a hammer, unless you read the New Testament and you notice the name Marcus as John Marcus. I think John Mark is the same person who was an opponent of Paul at the beginning, but then was taken into his fold. But anyway, data is very important. And obviously, since I'm using the word, I have no sword here. The hearers can do whatever they want, but they should not understand me saying, so whatever they decide and they want is okay. I did not say that. (laughs) I said, I cannot force them against their will. Each of the hearers will have to decide whether to repeat the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane. Notice related to the time when he will say to Peter not to use the sword. Thy will be done, not mine. But let's face it, all of us by this we mean, let our will, O God, meaning your and mine, because we agree, be fulfilled. That's not what Jesus said. And this passage is extremely important because Luke, the third Latin name, pushes it to the extreme when he speaks about a person sweating sweat and blood, which is strange, especially coming from Luke. Totally strange. Meaning this is where the battle was taking place in the decision of Jesus to go against his will because he asked his father, you know, can we postpone that? But here I'm getting too much excited, but at least it's good because my hearers have to see why I said to discuss the Maccabees. One already is touching on the New Testament, which is the reply against that. Thank you very much, Father. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much, Father. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.